0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Is artificial intelligence getting way too scary? Elon Musk and other tech leaders, they are weighing in. We'll go in depth. A major hurdle to a person's
2: health might be finding one simple thing. And reparations might cost
1: California a lot. Can we afford it? We'll go in depth. We start with AI, whether a break. Well, maybe it would do us all some good. Dr. Mahel Zuckman Katz is co-founder of Cahoon, which is an AI tool for doctors. She's also a former software engineer. Doctor, thanks for being with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Happy to comment.
1: So so uh Elon Musk, as we mentioned and others, they are asking for a pause. Uh they think that perhaps we're racing too quickly ahead with our development of artificial intelligence. Uh as we mentioned you're a former software engineer you're involved with AI to some degree how do you weigh in?
3: Um well this is a great question i think i mean i can speak from as you said from my own area of expertise um i'm being um, being a physician i'm actually a pediatrician but i'm also a co-founder of an AI technology company that builds AI tool for physicians that help physicians make more informed decisions and introduces uh, AI into the uh, uh, workflow of these physicians as they are making uh, management plans for their patients. Now you can imagine that uh, being uh, a co-founder of such a company has been uh, asked numerous times by physicians and by uh, uh, healthcare system thought health leaders about how they, these tools can affect the healthcare system. Um, Could they be in any way um, influencing these physicians or reducing their own capabilities, human capabilities uh, of making decisions? And I think in the healthcare system, um, we can safely say that it's safe to introduce AI into the the physicians' workflows because these tools... Okay, yeah, but,
1: but I, I'm going to interrupt because, because what I want to get to, Doctor, is is I get it. You feel that it's useful uh, for doctors and useful because you're in the business of, of, of doing that. Uh, but the question really is, do you think apart from your own business and apart from how you feel AI might be helpful to fellow physicians uh, who avail themselves of your service, whether you have any reservations about artificial intelligence and its other applications in the same way that Elon Musk and some of these other folks who are asking for a sort of moratorium have?
3: Yes, uh, well, absolutely. I mean, I think in respect to other uh, aspects of society, the adoption of of these AI tools um, should be taken much more cautiously. And I I should absolutely encourage and and actually applaud this Uh, pause that the top leaders of technology companies and thought leaders of the, who have uh, introduced this pause in uh, analyzing or evaluating how these tools can affect our society. Um, We know that society is relying on a balance between laws and regulations and cultural interventions and so on. And any changes that these tools, these powerful um, tools that have been uh, introduced into our lives in a very fast pace. Uh, we need to, to stop and listen to these top leaders and evaluate how, how these tools may affect our society and maybe alter the balance. Right. And, uh, and of course it's, it, it's important this will.
2: Is it possible, though, there's a little bit of hysteria here? I I don't think any of us doubt that that, uh, AI chatbot systems are going to lead to the replacement of of human workers. Uh, I think we've seen that in not just AI, but in a number of technological advances uh, where, you know, human beings get displaced by machines that can automate their tasks. But is there some hysteria regarding uh, the AI? Oh, my God, it's human. It's going to kill us all. Uh, or or, or we are going to, as you alluded to, going to stop knowing how to think ourselves? Is that maybe a little bit of an overreaction among some people? Because I, I wonder if we're really that close to AI being that intelligent.
3: Uh, I don't think it's an over uh, hysteria. I think um, even from just seeing the, the uh, uh, difference between the versions, the the Chat GPT version three to the version four, we see a, re, a huge jumps in in the power and and uh, capabilities of these tools, and there. Are obviously doing uh, a a much better job than uh, we can possibly imagine humans can do in respect to generating text and uh, in in all different parts of of society's tasks that we are needing to do. So I think it is not so much hysteria um, and it's uh, a way for us to catch up uh, with the pace of these advancements.
2: All right, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Mihail, uh, Zuckman, uh Katz, co-founder of Cahoon, which is an AI tool for doctors to use. Right now, though, a big issue in the medical world uh, that probably doesn't get a lot of attention is transportation. Uh, and that's to and from medical procedures. Now, a lot of people struggle to make appointments and procedures because they know they don't have rides to and from the hospital or doctor's office, and that can make some fixable health problems even worse. So here to talk about that is Dr. Scott Kaiser, who works mostly with elderly patients at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Thank you so much for joining us And he's today. not going
1: to talk about the other story. No, no,
2: he's yeah, going to talk this great one. great
4: to be here. I, I was <laughs> on the line, and I was getting a little anxious there. I said, you know, I, I, I guess I could talk about that, but... Uh, won't be you know, very well informed.
1: Well, you know what? If you'd like to go ahead.
4: No, here we can talk about something I do know a lot about, okay, right. about the challenges of caring for an aging population.
2: And so here's, here's the issue. Now, when I first uh, looked into this, I'm thinking, well, can't they call Uber or Lyft to take them? But that doesn't always work, and that doesn't always mean you can get a ride home, especially if you have a procedure done that requires some anesthesia, right?
4: Right, right. Yeah. So we're talking about people getting a medical procedure and really needing uh, an escort, somebody to be with them after they've had the anesthesia, you know, to take them home safely. And, you know, this is a big problem. You you know, we don't think about how much the social factors impact overall health and well-being. You know, some some estimates say that upwards of 80 percent of health outcomes are really impacted by social factors. And this is the perfect example. And when it comes to older people, you know, we have more older people living alone in this country than any, anywhere else in the world. And that includes people who are sometimes referred to as elder orphans or solo agers, people who really don't have any kind of uh, built-in family support.
1: But it's not just elderly people, right? I mean, it's also there are plenty of single younger people who need medical tests of all sorts that require that they be put out or uh, they are in a condition afterwards where they may not want to be left on their own devices to get home. What do you do? What does a doctor do when a patient says, you know, I don't have anybody, even, you know, even someone who's married, their spouse may be in a job that they can't. Necessarily walk away from for several hours in order to pick their spouse up after a medical procedure. How do you handle that?
4: Right, right. And so, you know, increasingly, this is something where it's, where, you know, there's a movement to say, hey, this should be part of kind of healthcare. We need to build these social pieces on uh, so that people can have support. Right now, people are getting it through, you know, community based organizations, volunteer organizations. Um, and, th- and that's really great. I mean, this is one of the most frequent demands of certain, uh, volunteer organizations where, you know, again, my, my expertise is in terms of care of older people where this is something that they might be able to do to help support.
2: I ran into an issue once where I had to have a procedure done. It was not serious, but I, I did have to be under anesthesia for a while. And when I was going to go home, they were like, uh, do you have somebody coming? Do you have a family member or someone coming to pick you up? And I said, no, I was just going to call a uh, lift. And they said, well, we're not allowed to let you do that because you've had anesthesia. And so what? Right. So uh, which made me question. Well, if I was going to have a family member pick me up, what's the difference between a, a family member or a friend? Or just calling an uber so what is why do some right, medical right. facilities you know, have that rule
4: yeah so i mean there is a question you know that maybe uh, is it over concern about liability uh but you know this is reasonable that people aren't just kind of thrown off kicked kick to the curb right you want people to be safe and and well cared for but again you know i just want to emphasize what an issue this is for so many people who are unsupported, living alone, socially isolated. I actually, I even co-founded a company, Determined Health, focused on uh, and, and provide type of support for people. Because it turns out, you know, if people are isolated, uh, they have all sorts of other challenges as well that might sound like kind of just social issues, but they turn out having a big impact on health and then impact, big impact on health too.
2: All right. uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Scott Kaiser uh, works with elderly patients at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. It's the FDA uh, approving the sale of uh, the overdose antidote Narcan over the counter. Buy it uh, at uh, a convenience store, a drug store, wherever you want to get it. It's the first time an opioid treatment drug will be available without a prescription. Now, David Cohen is with us. He's the clinical director of uh, Harmony Place, which is an alcohol and drug rehab center in Woodland Hills. Thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: So how big of a game changer is this? And is this an indication that this has been tested enough and we know that its use is relatively safe?
5: Yeah, Narcan has been available uh, for many years, but largely through EFTs and uh, through prescription. So this is a big deal and I believe it is a, a radical game changer. Uh, Narcan has the ability to reverse overdose and a lot of, what we're seeing out there is accidental overdose. So people buying drugs, thinking they're buying one thing, ultimately getting another and and overdosing.
1: Is there a concern though that if somebody buys this uh, over the counter at I don't know, say a supermarket or can you know a Seven Eleven, that they won't know how to properly use it?
5: Uh, it's my understanding that this particular product will have you know uh, you know it is relatively simple to use, and there will be instructions. So it's basically a nasal spray. Um, I, I think my concern now is that um, because you don't know the, the quantity or the quality of the drug, sometimes it takes two or three different Narcan doses to reverse the effects of
0: overdose.
2: I don't think there's anybody in the country that would be against making Narcan more available uh, because obviously it can and it does save many, many lives who would otherwise be lost if it wasn't available. But is there a danger of an unintended consequence? And what I'm talking about is the fact that Narcan is so easy to get that, uh, say, a younger person who wants to live on the edge and live dangerously like, I want to try fentanyl for myself and see what it's like, and I'll be okay because my friend is standing here and we just bought some Narcan. So uh, is, is there a danger of an unintended consequence of that, or is that such a small Possibility that anybody would think that way—that uh, that we shouldn't even think about it.
5: No, I think um, you know, I think that's realistic in some cases. Um, but I think that same person would have tried fentanyl anyway, with or without the accessibility of Narcan. So this is a way to prevent an accidental overdose. I don't see a downside to this. I think this is a great move, and I think it should be in every household. Um, because you never know who's using, or what family member might be using, or what neighbor might be using. It's just really good to have on hand. Here at Harmony Place, we have uh, Narcan at our nursing station, at our resident advisor station. We have it all over the place, just in case.
1: But you I know, have it in our- yeah. But often when drugs go to uh, over the counter, the cost goes up considerably because insurance stops covering for it. And often government programs like Medicaid or California Medi-Cal would stop covering for it. Do we have any idea what's going to happen in this case?
5: I mean, I assume with Biden's administration trying to push the Narcan uh, and the availability of uh, this life-saving drug, I'm hoping it doesn't impact the communities and the county's response to having it available. Uh, And certainly I think it still will be available through prescription. So I'm hoping the spirit of having it available will just um, will will be just that, just allow it to be in more hands.
2: Would you you support the idea of uh, and it's probably a good idea to in addition to being available over the counter is uh, communities uh, uh, buying up some supplies of this and making it available in uh, communities, neighborhoods where it might be most needed?
5: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, right now, uh, it is available through prescription. Some pharmacists are handing it out, and um, there are government programs that either hand it out for free or just have it at their community centers. So I don't think that's going to change. Um, I do think uh, they should stockpile, um, but now um, consumers like you and I can, uh, have the opportunity to buy it. So. I think it's a
2: good thing. All right. Thanks so much, uh, David Cohen, clinical director of Harmony Place, which is an alcohol and drug rehab center in Woodland Hills. You're listening to KX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. And I guess you're probably familiar with time shares. You buy time at a vacation property that you can use every year at specific times.
1: Yeah, But there's a similar concept now called tractional home ownership, But some people who live in destination communities in California, for example, Newport Beach, say that they are causing problems. With us to hopefully explain how this all works is real estate and investment expert Ari Rastiger and Nancy Scarborough, who is a Newport Beach resident and activist. Both of you, thanks for being with us.
0: Hey, thanks for having us. You're welcome. Thank you.
1: Nancy, I'm going to start with you because my understanding is that you don't like this particular arrangement. Why not?
6: Um, it takes housing stock out of the houses available for purchase in Newport Beach. We have a, a shortage of housing that's affordable anyway. The fact that they purchase these homes and then resell sec- fractions of them makes the cost of the homes higher than what a normal home in the market would cost. And so it, it skews the the um, pricing of all of the homes. They're difficult to regulate, so you have um, no – the city doesn't have any option to um, impose rules over these. You have um, staff in there regularly. The the stays are limited to two days to two weeks, so you have staff in and out of there for cleaning and landscaping and maintenance. causes a lot of problems with traffic and parking. Uh, There's just a number of things that are problematic in a residential neighborhood. They really – I think, belong in commercial neighborhoods where hotel uh, hotels would operate.
2: Okay. So uh, Ari Rastegar, an expert in real estate investments, uh, you can hear some of the local residents offering some pushback on this. Uh, a lot of them don't like the idea. But tell us what it is specifically. How does this work and how is this different from a regular run-of-the-mill timeshare?
0: Yeah, it's you know. So look, I, I think it's it, it's in the it's in the application. Um, I I personally am am a proponent of of the of a free market in the, in this capacity, and I actually believe that it will spur more acquisitions. Um, could actually help this part of the market because I'm actually worried of a pretty severe bubble for you know luxury luxury housing, and I actually think that this tempers that potential bubble. Um, in a pretty in a pretty meaningful way, but I agree with Nancy wholeheartedly that that doesn't mean that people just can run amok with this. And these are residential neighborhoods, um, as such. But you know that's also Airbnb and you know all these other things that already exist. So I do think that there is some some regulation. There is some nuance. Uh, homeowners associations, I think, need to get really smart about regulating this and seeing whether or not it makes sense. Um, But I don't think this is a governmental um, a governmental regulation. I think it's more on a case by case basis. I actually like the idea because I think that, as I said, that the the luxury, um, the luxury market is poised for a pretty big problem. um, Newport Beach in particular um, so I actually think this is a pretty creative way um, to allow individuals that, you know, but for fractional ownership, you know, wouldn't be able to own, you know, what potentially could be their kind of dream vision board house. So I actually think there's a lot of really, right. you know, really cool parts. All right.
1: So uh, let me read you guys uh, a very brief statement that uh, we got from I think it's uh, the company's called Picasso. Uh, which uh, is in the business of of, uh, these kind of of, uh, fractional ownerships. And what they say, in part, is uh, many existing homes within Newport Beach are co-owned through a multi-owner arrangement like an LLC or a trust. And then the company, Picasso, goes on to say that, that that's no different than how Picasso homeowners own their homes. Nancy, what do you think
7: of that?
6: Um, I disagree with that. There are homes that are owned by family LLCs and they work out amongst themselves for time that they would spend at the home and, or even friends. This is different. These are um, people who don't know each other or didn't know each other before they bought the home. They sign up for two days to two weeks online. They are not, uh, they don't treat the homes necessarily like they are a neighbor. They don't have kids that go to the schools. They don't belong to the um the clubs or or the um churches that are in the neighborhood they're just um not full-time neighbors and so there it's a, it changes the culture and the the um it just changes the culture of the neighborhood I, I don't think that it's at all like having a neighbor that is a single neighbor you'd walk up and you know have a chat with on a saturday afternoon while you're mowing your lawn it's different
2: uh, Ari, back to you. You know, with timeshares, uh, there's kind of a, a side business, a side industry that's grown up alongside the timeshare industry. And that is uh, uh, companies and uh, firms that uh, exist solely to get you out of timeshares that you're into. Because a lot of people buy into this and discover yeah. that, you know, it's not working out for me. Is this fractional home ownership thing uh, going to be like, uh, is the same thing going to happen there where there's going to be a whole new industry grown up with people who uh, will help you get out of your transactional home? ownership
0: I, 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 I think so. And, you know, I, I think here um, the the vantage points that I think we need to just kind of elucidate is saying, OK, you know, what is there an issue with the business itself? And what does that mean versus, you know, how does it affect, you know, other consumers and the areas and things of that nature? And I, and I really appreciate what Nancy's saying. And I, and I totally agree with her that um, the way that these houses are treated, um, you know, definitely could be different. But with that said, they also still. You know, are owners. So I think it is a different treatment, maybe not entirely with the same degree of care as a neighbor. But with that said, vacation homes um, as well also kind of share that nuance. And I think the the alternate is saying if you own it full on, uh, just yourself without fractional ownership, and you need to cover, you know, some of the expenses of property taxes or things in nature, the alternative is using Airbnb and having all sorts of random strangers that could be there. For a night or two mm. nights or, or something of that nature that have zero ownership and zero vested interest and truly are people that could be potentially dangerous to the neighborhood. So I actually think this is a much lesser um, issue and actually a, a better alternative because when people do have ownership, no matter how small it is, okay, just by human nature, we are going to treat it with more care. I right. believe so. I think that the homeowners associations just need to understand that this it ex- exists. Um, and it is something that is out there and okay. they need to self-regulate it and just say whether or not the neighborhoods want them to be able to be sensitive to Nancy's perspective. I, right. I think it's uh, I think that's the solution.
2: Well, thanks, guys. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Ari Rastegard there, who is an expert in the real estate,
1: also Nancy Scarborough, a Newport Beach resident and activist. Some economists are saying a plan for reparations here in California could cost more than eight hundred billion dollars.
2: And that is more than twice of California's annual budget. So, yeah, the numbers are a little iffy here. Timothy Simon is an attorney and chairman of the California African-American Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much for joining us today.
7: Thank you for having me. So if we're
2: talking $800 billion and that's more than our budget, where where will that money come from if it's approved?
7: Um, I doubt if that amount will be approved, but I do like the fact that the magnitude of the estimated debt is educating the public as to the 245 to 54 years of slavery along with the additional 100 years of Jim Crow and redlining and segregation and lack of access to capital housing, other things that have impacted the, the, the citizens of this country who were formerly enslaved, who, by the way, fought in every war In this nation's history and really gave this nation the economic impetus, whether we liked it or not, by way of enslavement and the the economic, some would say terrorism, that existed against uh, the formerly enslaved in this country.
1: What do you say, though, to some of the critics who are already saying, yeah, but California was never a slave state, so why would California taxpayers have to pay?
7: Well, one, California was not a slave state, but it did honor the Fugitive Slave Act. So, in other words, if my owners, the whites who owned my family in in Louisiana and Oklahoma, if they came to California, I remained under that ownership. And that was enforced by the courts and the legislature. So, again, this is an interesting aspect of our nation's history that this debate on reparations is bringing to the forefront. So for me, the value add is that we're having this dialogue, and particularly for the immigrants in this country, most of whom came here after uh, after the emancipation, after Juneteenth, after Brown v. Board of Education, uh, or many after Brown v. Board of Education, they're learning why conditions were the way they were when they arrived. They're learning why there's a certain extent of privilege and access that they had that the African citizens or the citizens from Africa did not have. So what I like about this is not so much the monetization. That'll happen in time. But I think the true value is the dialogue. The fact that you and I are talking about it and you're telling me why you, someone opposes it, why someone's in support of it. This is healthy. This is similar to what South Africa did after the end of Arpitai. They had They had the truth and reconciliation commission to dig into the true history because I believe ignorance is our biggest enemy here. It's not the California budget, it's ignorance. And the fact that so many Americans who love this country do not know the history. And as we're now getting the attack on what's been characterized as wokeism or critical race theory, there's a very high likelihood that our children that we love so much will not know the history. If you do not know the history, then you're vulnerable to repeat it again. Right. and me, That is the challenge.
2: So, Algar, you, as you say, uh, you doubt that it's going to be this figure of $800 billion, which they're estimating it could cost more than that. But uh, so there's some room for haggling and negotiation here. Could some of those negotiations maybe uh, include some options of like, well, uh, cash payments or accommodation of cash payments and uh, and other incentives uh, or maybe donations or more investment in minority communities uh, what kind of form could this reparation take?
7: I, I support that concept. I do not sit on the state or the San Francisco Commission but I do like the fact that the estimated value is being put forth or the or the estimated figure and then work from there work to what is practical. I believe it was Bob Woodson who stated uh, in an article I read that that it was impractical. Some say you cannot really monetize the true impacts of slavery. Well, we monetize other things. You know, we're, we're monetizing the war in Ukraine, for example. So I do believe that if, either if it's by way of scholarships, if it's by way of investments in historical Black colleges and universities, if it's by, by way of housing credits, that I think there are a number of uh, business access. I I think there are a number of ways that this can be packaged, but I will leave that to the legislature and the various appointed commissions around the country because I do believe they're doing their due diligence. But the sticker shock, and I've said this on another uh, channel, I think the sticker shock is having a similar effect as defund the police. Did people want police departments to be defunded? Not most sane, intelligent people. Did they want police departments to be reformed? Yes. All right. So I think we're going to have to deal with the sticker shock of the reality of the damage that slavery caused to my ancestors and and, and my community. I I think that's healthy. I do. All right. I want to compliment you for having this conversation.
2: Thank you so much uh, for presenting your side of the view here. Uh, Timothy Simon, an attorney and chairman of the California African-American Chamber of Commerce. Well, that's going to do it for KNX In Depth today. You know, I'm thinking uh, time capsule. Time capsule. Yeah. Yeah. Right in the time capsule. Yep. This is going to go in. Yep. Or, or we could try this again tomorrow. Let's do that. All right.